0: So, yeah, the, the title of this talk is um, Liberation and Solidarity Amidst the Challenges of Our Times. Um, over, over the last few years, um, I've often used uh, a couple of quotes to, um, to kind of reflect how difficult it has become for many people to mm, imagine that a better world is genuinely really possible so uh, the first quote is from a writer called Mark Fisher who wrote a very interesting essay called um, Capitalist Realism 2009 and uh, Mark Fisher says um, that the lack of alternatives to capitalism is no longer even an issue for many people that capitalism seamlessly occupies the horizon of the thinkable. And uh, and he coined a phrase phrase in that that essay um, which was uh, the idea of reflexive impotence. So reflexive impotence is an experience where we have a heightened sense of the challenges around us. vast amounts of information available to us, you know, retina screen sort of detail, Um, and yet an incredible lack of opportunity to act uh, in a way that feels that it has a a real influence upon those, those difficulties that we perceive in the world. Reflexive impotence and the other quote I, I used quite a lot is from Frederick Jameson so I think this was like 2004 and uh, he said um, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism hmm. and I think um, I mean this was particularly uh, strong I felt in uh, the early part of the 2000s um, Around, particularly around, you know, the heightened awareness of climate change and other kind of big ecological kind of struggles that we're facing and, you know, an increasing sense of hopelessness, you know, in our capacity to respond to those immense challenges that are so, you know, so characterised and mark our time, the exceptional nature of these times. So, yeah, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. I think that's changed. I think it's changing. Um, I think that there's a, a really historic point of disruption that's beginning to open up once more, a space for a truly alternative kind of political vision um, and a fresh kind of re revitalized social engagement. I think the moment right now, at this point in time, really marks an opportunity, to, an opportunity for us to genuinely contest um, what we are, how we understand ourselves, and uh, the kind of society that we want to live in. And I think the 2008 crash marked the decisive point of disruption. So, you know, my sense is that many of the social tensions... Uh, that are inherent in capitalist forms of production were kind of masked, obscured uh, since the end of the Second World War in various ways. Uh, Initially, the the post-Second World War Keynesian social pact that saw the historic redistribution of wealth in the establishment of the welfare state. Um, Then... The kind of cycles of public debt that enabled that system to be maintained in some ways, and then later the kind of the, the translation of that public debt into private debt, which was able to really fuel the um, the kind of you know rampant consumerism for many years, and again, you know. Then from 2008, we saw that, that private debt kind of translated again into a more a heightened, a sort of a, 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 a multiplied sort of level of public debt again. And I think through that, at that point from 2008, the sort of promise, the idea that um, uh, capitalism through economic growth can continue to offer increasing amounts of wealth and well-being, that notion was completely shattered. And with it, in a way, you know, what was revealed was that so many of us, so many people had kind of sold their souls to that promise, um, as had an awful lot of, of political organising. In a way, it kind of, you know, it revealed um, more, more starkly, you know, the, the, the tragedy, as it were, of the historic defeat of alternative political visions. It wrapped up in that as the historic defeat of the old left. For now, I'd say, you know, the, the stalled engine of uh, sort of neoliberal growth and an increasing sense of social, uh, indis, uh, distributive justice, um, the kind of bankrupted political leadership and the kind of fierce urgency of the ecological now are cracks out of which a renewed social imagination is beginning to, to unfold, to grow. In Europe. So it's true, I think, that the kind of lack of progressive organizing, the historic defeat of the old left, um, meant that, as we saw last year especially, that the right has been far better placed to channel the discontent that is surfacing in this point of disruption. And you know we see that especially in the kind of this the, the sort of the rise, the surge in far right politics that became very apparent last year um It seems to be a very strong kind of uh uh influence on the the brexit experience in the United Kingdom but in a way that kind of woke quite a few people up, I think many people have been pretty complacent in a sense up until then you know. Um, And I think a lot of people have been woken up, and I think there is a really revitalised, a sort of revitalising of the political landscape sort of taking place. In the UK, I think specifically since the kind of Brexit vote, the referendum, a sort of revitalisation of that. So we no longer live in a a world where um, the horizon of the thinkable is delimited by uh, capitalism or... It's, uh, it's, a tense, its sort of austerity politics. Instead, we've kind of opened into a space of um, more open crisis. Um, Gramsci described a similar condition in, 19, in 1930 with the phrase, the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot yet be born. we're living in a period of incredible uncertainty Um there's so many factors at play but I think it's a period in which our efforts to promote and build a future that's, that's life-affirming is really vitally important so for us at the Ikadama Centre one of our responses to that perception is uh, our, we're establishing a new training centre which opens in the autumn it's called the ULEX Project and it focuses specifically on building capacity in social movements across Europe. It's a pan European project. And in that at that centre, we the training we do is largely framed, well it's exclusively framed in a secular manner. Right? But it's but but the training, the ethos. Uh, the content, what we're doing there is very, very much underpinned by a conviction that the Dharma, the insights, the practices of Dharma, uh, have so much to contribute to this kind of this social re-engagement. You know, that re-engagement isn't easy, there are so many challenges, but the Dharma can Support has to engage effectively. We frame that in secular language to kind of make it more available to more people, because we're so we sort of feel so keenly the importance of a really extensive impact and the importance of rebuilding a sense of collective agency. So we want that to reach more people. But our understanding, you know, the methodology what we're offering is really informed by this sort of conviction, the sense that the dharma can really offer something very, very uh, valuable to that social engagement. You know, my experience is that um, you know the Dharma is is so useful in terms of our ability to work effectively with other people. Very challenging, right? Collaborating with others, very challenging. But it can really, really support that in so many ways. It can really provide us with a much greater, much deeper emotional resilience you know, facing you know you know the immensity of the challenges we're facing, um, and the kind of clarity and the mental agility that Dharma practice can provide us with as well. It can help us to kind of do politics in fresh and creative in new ways. It can help us to sort of think outside the box in lots of ways, to be much more responsive. But I think it can only do that if um, if we avoid important misunderstandings of the Dharma. You know, I feel that there's far too much... Um, too much of contemporary Dharma that focuses on the individual and individual consciousness which is a tendency that in a way just reflects the atomizing fragmenting individualistic tendencies in society at large Um, instead I think we need to uh, stay true to a presentation of the Dharma that helps us to avoid the kind of spiritual dead end or kind of escapism and quietism so you know what could what could Buddhism offer uh, a renewed kind of engagement so I think for it to be relevant um, we need this enriched sense of what Buddhism is and what it can become I think we need to sort of refuse to succumb to a reduced vision of humanity and society Um, I think Irrelevant Buddhism needs to avoid the kind of debilitating separation between the personal, the spiritual, and the political. Uh, it needs to really unreservedly um, kick off the sort of divisive dualism of self and other, and that's the kind of work that we're trying to do, you know, in the Eko Center, and find, you know, which is, you know, it's a very, very ambitious project, anyway, very ambitious project. So something that, that resonates with me with a similar kind of ambition um, is the work of uh, a philosopher and writer called uh, Robert Unger. And um, So he's a Brazilian philosopher and political thinker. And in 2014, he published a book that was called um, The Religion of the Future. And in the book, he asks two questions. He asks... How can we organize a society that gives us a better chance to be fully alive, and how can we reinvent religion so that it liberates us instead of consoling us? So it's a long book towards the end he kind of summarizes his kind of you know his, his thinking, his exploration, and he says so his vision of this this future of this religion of the future he says. Our religion should begin in the acknowledgement of our mortality and groundlessness. In the acknowledgement of these terrifying facts rather than in their denial as religion traditionally has. It should arouse us to change society, culture and ourselves so that we become, all of us, not just the happy few, bigger as well as more equal. It should therefore, as well, make us more willing to unprotect ourselves for the sake of bigness and love. It should convince us to exchange serenity for searching. Then, so long as we live, we shall have a greater life, and draw farther away from the idols, but closer to one another, and be deathless temporarily. So I'm really drawn to Unger's um, ambition um, in this vision of a religion of the future. Um, I really appreciate this sort of framing of this religion uh, which integrates social engagement with practice that addresses the key existential challenges that face us. So he he argues that uh, this new religion would eschew escapism or resignation and that our struggle in the world provides the transformational context in which we can most fully realise our potential. Um, We shouldn't engage in socio-political organising out of a sense of duty or obligation, but because we recognise that when we engage with others based on deep values and vision, we create a space uh, in which we and those around us can truly flourish. Now when we commit to engage uh, with others to address the enormous ecological, social and political challenges that we face, we reclaim our collective agency. We reclaim something of our fundamentally social nature as human beings. And we create a crucial context for the transformation of ourselves and those around us. You know, committed... Collaboration with others on that basis can bring forth our creativity and the care that really lies within us. When we empower that kind of commitment with practices and insights of the Dharma, as I was saying, you know, the results are deeply transformative. There's you know, the emotional resilience that we need to sustain us and that bright responsive quality of awareness. It helps us to avoid narrow-mindedness and, you know, ideological dead ends. Um, it can help us to deepen our empathy and our compassion. You know, to, to to really open to the immensity of pain and suffering in the world, and we can kind of unlock insights that help us to not reproduce the problems that we're trying to solve. And also, you know, we can cultivate deep the necessary deep patience um, to work with these long, complex processes of trying to be helpful and beneficial in the world. And of course, we can also find very deep wellsprings of courage and energy. So whilst I sense that in the Dharma, Unger, however, he dismisses Buddhism as a source of um, Inspiration for his religion of the future. Uh, He identifies Buddhism with uh, the idea of overcoming the world. Uh, In his view, Buddhism reduces the world to a kind of a fallen, deluded illusion um, that offers escape from this world of error um, to some other place of genuine salvation and peace so i think it's a mistaken understanding of the dharma i think it's based on a relatively limited reading of what buddhism offers but i think it's an understandable error i think it's an understandable reading because in fact so much of the buddhist tradition itself misunderstands itself in that way both historically and uh, in contemporary practice. There's there's an American writer called Loyal Rue, and uh, in a book called Everybody's Story, he says, to the extent that the Axial Age traditions have stressed cosmological dualism and individual salvation we may say they have encouraged an attitude of indifference towards the integrity of natural and social systems. So amongst the Axial Age uh, traditions, there's Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Vedanta and Buddhism. And he's saying that to the extent that they operate within a religious framework that places a truer more real, more sacred reality above, beyond, or behind a fallen and illusory world, Um, salvation is seen to lie in escaping to that somewhere else heaven or nirvana. And this cosmological view uh, undermines our struggle in the world. Both cosmological dualism and the pursuit of a personal salvation conduce towards a kind of withdrawal Uh, they lead to a lack of care for the ecological and the social context that we live in so these pitfalls of cosmological dualism and individual salvation are and have been real problems for Buddhism and historically we can see that in the early Buddhist uh, depiction of the goal of Nirvana and the Arahant ideal. And we can also see it in contemporary forms of Buddhism that emphasize uh, the psychological resolution of personal suffering, or in approaches that excessively emphasize emptiness and no self. So the influence in neoliberalism and the alienating social field that it's generated has reframed how many people approach and present the Dharma. You know, in many cases it's become an individual affair focused on our own state of mind. And as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, of contemporary psychologized forms of Dharma and aspects of popular mindfulness training as well, he says, if you absent a sharp social critique... Buddhist practices could easily be used to justify and stabilise the status quo, becoming a reinforcement of consumer capitalism. Similarly, excessive emphasis on emptiness and no self can play into psychological tendencies of dissociation. Um, where the the profound teachings of non-attachment actually get in the way of people learning how to form healthy uh, connections based on care and compassion. There are approaches that ironically um, seem to become attached to non-attachment. So we can see that in some contemporary forms of uh, well, neo-advaita, the satsang-style teachings that are very popular today, and also in insight meditation teaching that doesn't emphasize sufficiently ethical commitment uh, or spiritual community. So those are all paths towards evasion rather than engagement. Uh, They're approaches that... Contemporary alienated consciousness finds very attractive, yeah, and that lead us into a kind of pseudo-spiritual dissociation. For authentic spiritual development, we need engagement. Uh, we need connection. As Sanguachita has said, an individualistic approach or motivation for the spiritual life is not the spiritual life at all. Those stunted versions of the Dharma, they lead us into traps. Uh, And on top of that, they strengthen damaging tendencies in the world that we share. So if Buddhism is to contribute meaningfully to engagement in the world, uh, we need to rid it of both cosmological dualism and the false promise of some kind of personal salvation. Fortunately, historically, that's precisely what the Mahayana has supported us to understand. The Mahayana uh, philosophized the non-duality of nirvana and samsara, avoiding cosmological dualism. Um, and emphasised the centrality of compassion, placing altruistic motivation right at the very heart of Dharma practice, avoiding individualistic preoccupation. The Mahayana addresses the problem by surpassing the ideal of personal liberation with what we know as the Bodhisattva ideal. the Bodhisattva commits to liberate all beings. Rather than seeking escape from this world and the peace of nirvana, the Bodhisattvas ground their practice in an aspiration to support the spiritual flourishing of all beings, which is a beautiful ideal that integrates compassionate solidarity for all beings with the wisdom that recognises that we're not ultimately separate from them. Traditionally, the path uh, of the Bodhisattva begins with the vow to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings and to defer entering nirvana until all beings are liberated. Which is a beautiful, very noble ideal, but still it supports a mistaken conception of nirvana in, all, in that way of talking um, we can still be left with a view that indeed there is a nirvana in some other place of salvation um, that the Bodhisattva merely puts off entering until later And the ideal of commitment that's implied in the Bodhisattva vow is really powerful but it still harbors a subtle cosmological dualism but that narrative is only figurative you know philosophically the Mahayana actually goes further than that as, as the, the uh, Buddha Bumi Sutra says when liberation is achieved there is no difference between samsara and nirvana they are regarded as of one taste And more radically than that even, the Mahayana reframes the final goal of practice not as nirvana, but as apratishita nirvana, which is translated as not dwelling in nirvana, or uh, non-abiding nirvana. So this is a vision of liberation um, in which the Bodhisattva doesn't turn their back from either nirvana or Samsara. It's a vision of liberation amidst and within the struggles of the world. With this idea, we find that the Mahayana doesn't accept escapism, um, the seeking of salvation elsewhere, or a complacent acceptance that we're simply doomed to suffer endlessly in this world. In a sense, you know, it matches something of Anga's Aspiration for his religion of the future liberation uh, in this sense is not found by escaping from the world but by transforming fundamentally the way we engage in the world so David Loy um, is a Buddhist scholar and teacher uh, expresses this very well in a book called uh, Awareness Bound and Unbound Awareness Bound and Unbound So he suggests that delusion, ignorance, samsara, is awareness trapped. And liberation, enlightenment, nirvana, is awareness unstuck because it's free from grasping. And he points to the teachings of Zen master Hakuin, who says that uh, the difference between Buddhas and the rest of us is like that between water and ice. Without water, there's no ice. And without Buddhas, there are no sentient beings. So David Loy goes on to ask, are we just frozen Buddhas? So unfreezing awareness, uh, liberating its unboundedness, is what Buddhist practice is really about. Our practice is that support us to bring a non-grasping attention to experience or what help us to thaw out. So methodologically, we find uh, this often in the practices that help us to deconstruct limiting views, our sort of narrow attachments to a small ego identity, uh, to conceptual closure, Uh, attachment to the kind of desperate hanging on to that which is insubstantial and impermanent. But those deconstructive practices they're only part of what the Dharma offers us. If we mistakenly think that these um, explorations of emptiness or no-self are the whole of the Buddhist teaching uh, we miss out on so much of what it's offering. There's a Japanese Buddhist scholar called uh, Gajin Nagao, and he talks about Mahayana Buddhism as um, having these two directions articulating two directions of the spiritual life Uh, he calls those two directions ascent and descent and in his reading the two great strands of Mahayana uh, the Yogacara and Madhyamaka uh, they articulate uh, in a complementary way these two directions of the spiritual life so, you know, in, in in a lot of scholarship um, until relatively recently, often the Madhyamaka was contrasted with with yogacara. Um, there was a sort of you know there was a view of a kind of some sort of dichotomy between them. But um, the Gauss suggests you know that that only reflects the kind of the later, uh, less sophisticated understandings, um, and not really the understanding of the early Mahayana thinkers themselves. In fact, he says, you know, they are complementary of each other, which is something that Sangarachita also, you know, was able to kind of point towards. So, Nagao associates the the ascent directionality of the spiritual life with the Madhyamaka, um, with their kind of rigorous uh, deconstruction of all categories and all concepts, their uncompromising methods for revealing the empty nature of all phenomena so that's the ascent sort of direction and then he associates the, di- the sense directionality with the teachings of the Yogacara who he says are trying to articulate how the Buddha qualities of wisdom and compassion manifest in the world and we need both of these so this you know this this last part of um, you know how the, the emphasis of the Yogacara I think is really is beautifully uh, captured in the sto- one of the stories about uh, the founder of the tradition who is a sangha uh, he and his brother Vasubandhu were kind of the the kind of key early um, the- theoreticians the kind of you know developers of the of the approach and a sangha um, he spent In in legend, he receives the main treatise of the Yogacara from the Buddha Maitreya. And he he spent many, many years uh, in sort of devout practice in a cave, sort of trying to, seeking uh, a vision of Maitreya. And uh, meditated, practiced in solitude, you know, kind of extraordinary sort of simplicity in his cave meditating away and eventually though you know he feels that he's failed Uh, the vision hasn't appeared and so he leaves the cave and he begins to walk down the long kind of winding uh, mountain path back down towards the village perhaps back to the monastery that he had been based in and training in previously so he's heading off down that path and amidst the, the rocks and sort of scree of that mountain path, eventually he, he comes across a, a dog lying, injured, you know, badly wounded with a kind of a festering wound. And uh, in the wound, um, in fact, it's become infected and there are maggots, you know, eating the flesh of the dog in this wound. And, uh, and Asanga is just, you know, deeply overcome by compassion and he kind of you know kneels down to try and help this dog when he sees the maggots in the wound and he's kind of wow so how am i gonna how do i support the dog but also not do harm to the maggots you know sort of this deep sort of you know heartfelt kind of dilemma of like you know the difficulty of acting beneficially in the world you know we find that so often it's like we try and do one thing to help and actually you know it's Incredibly of challenging. And so he decides, you know, he, he feels like the best he can do is to, you know, remove the these um these maggots really delicately and carefully with his tongue. You know, with his fingers he's worried he's gonna sort of, So he sort of he begins to use his tongue to remove these maggots from this festering wound of this dog. And the moment he kind of bends down and begins to do that, the dog transforms and reveals itself to actually be my Buddha who sort of floats into the air above him and the whole kind of ongoing story of him then receiving the teachings and the blessings and so on sort of come from there. And there's something so you know, there's something so beautiful in that in that it's there in that final commitment to not shy away from, you know, the complexity and the challenges, the kind of the, the messy, right? Uh, stinking, putrid kind of engagement in the world, right, in an uncompromising way, in that decision that's when the sort of deeper wisdom suddenly kind of dawns and it's not that the compassion is just an expression Mm -hmm. of that wisdom it's that the the realisation and the engagement are kind of wrapped up together, they're they're inextricable if we put too much emphasis on the Sort of the deconstructive ascending uh, dimension, we we miss out on these important teachings. The kind of about the kind of creative manifesting descending dimension of, of the Dharma, and it's a mistake, you know, as we find with that story of Asanga, to to think that Buddhist practice is about first ascending to wisdom uh, and then somehow compassionate action descending out of that. Uh, Nagal rather, is sort of pointing to um, the importance to, to hold these two movements simultaneously, how they unfold simultaneously in our lives. So, you know, the purpose um, of practices of non-attachment and non-grasping you know, clearly it's not to lead to dissociated states but to free up the kind of our creative vitality uh, in service for, in, in service of life and you know, the practices of, of deconstruction they're not intended to negate this world but to realise and release the creative potential that's actually at its heart it's um a phrase I love that kind of captures this for me is from uh, Dilgo Kiense. And Dilgo Kiense says When we recognize the empty nature, the energy to benefit others dawns effortless and uncontrived. and that realization of the empty nature, there's an incredible fullness of engagement. So, thawing out our bound awareness, as Lloyd suggests, leaves awareness unbound, bright, engaged, and creatively responsive. And that really, I think, is what Dharma practice is for. Uh, although, you know, periods of retreat and pauses in our engagement and our action for deep reflection are really necessary components of Dharma practice. Uh, withdrawal, final withdrawal or negation of the world is a dead end so you know the the, the commitment um, to deep contemplative practice integrated with committed engagement is an incredibly potent combination so I'm really interested in, you know, what the Dharma can bring to these challenges at this time. And in the work that I do with activists and through my own engagement, you know, I feel it's really, really clear to me that effective Dharma practice and the qualities that support us to bring forth um, are of, of really, you know, vital importance and benefit at the moment. This kind of, like, the way it can avoid us to... Get caught in uh, kind of politically sectarian kind of states of mind. The ability to meet difference, to understand, you know, what currently are incredibly damaging tendencies of sort of othering it, that we see in the kind of you know um, xenophobic, sort of intolerant, far right kind of mentalities. To understand how that othering plays out in in subtle ways. In our own lives, in our own political positions as well, and to, to be able to work well with that, um, you know the, the qualities that Dharma practice brings forth helps us to really avoid the kind of ideological closure that stop our political engagement being as responsive as it really could be. Um, you know it helps us to, to cut through. Um, and I've seen, you know, see this so often in environmental activism, the kind of deep despondency um, that that arises for people, the cynicism that comes after years of failure in responding to these things. And of course, for us to make a, a benefit, you know, the, the the development of social movements um, that have real lasting institutional impact, they're multi generational projects. You know, we need to be able to stay and sustain our engagement for the long haul, despite inevitable defeats, despite inevitable failings and mistakes in our attempts to work with the sort of messy realities of social life and social change. And the Dharma, I think, can resource us to do that. It can resource us not to hang on to ephemeral kind of passing hopes, but to sustain ourselves with a much, much deeper, much, much deeper kind of motivation, with a you know that, that includes a deep patience and a deep understanding of the inevitability of the challenges and conflicts that there are in the world. So I think the Dharma can help us to re-envision these kind of spiritual political uh, projects. You know, instead of deferring our salvation um, into some sort of social utopian future, some, or some kind of somewhere else kind of redemption, it encourages us to recognise our salvation um, right here in the heart of our action. You know, liberation, I sense, lies in the heart of our responsive and caring engagement in this moment. So it implies an approach to politics that takes seriously the combined project of forging new social relations and new consciousness. And it implies an approach to spiritual practice that breaks with cosmological dualism, the narrow goal of personal liberation. And the spiritual goal becomes the realization of a responsive, unbounded awareness that's empowered and engaged And evolving. A sense that our liberation and the liberation of others are bound together. And it's through our efforts to liberate ourselves and others together that we really come alive. So, there you have it.